My aim this morning is that I might be used by God to deepen and intensify your pleasure in God. Deepen so that the winds of cancer or depression or bankruptcy or divorce or prodigal children will not blow that pleasure away and intensify so that you will know the fullness of the enjoyment of God that he intends for you to have and so that your light will shine with the brightness of his value and his beauty more than it has in the past. And when I say pleasure in God, I don't mean pleasure in his gifts, even his best gifts, like forgiveness. I mean pleasure in him, his beauty, his worth, all the panorama of his perfections that we can see in scripture and in Jesus Christ. Now, behind that goal for this message, there are a set of convictions. I call these convictions Christian hedonism. That phrase, Christian hedonism, is simply a a provocative label for what I consider radical Christianity or normal Christianity. And I would like to unpack that for you and show its relevance to our theme. So in, in a sense, you could say my aim is that I would convert all of you to being Christian hedonists, and that is, in fact, my aim, if you're not already. Here's a summary of Christian hedonism. Christian hedonism affirms that God commands all people everywhere in all times to pursue their maximum pleasure. And by maximum, I mean in two senses, qualitatively and in duration. So he commands every human being 24-7 to pursue with all your heart and all your soul, all your might, all your strength, pleasure, maximum pleasure, maximum in quality, maximum in duration. Secondly, Christian hedonism affirms that the highest quality pleasure and the most durable, long-lasting pleasure is found only in God. Not his gifts, but God himself. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord, and again I say rejoice. That's a command, not a suggestion. Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord. It's a command. Psalm 32, 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Psalm 90, verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days, the prayer of a righteous man. So the first and great commandment 
is to enjoy God, love God, delight in God, be satisfied with the supreme value and beauty of God. That's what love means. Love doesn't mean work for, he doesn't need your work. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything for he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. Loving God doesn't mean working for God. Loving God means you're my favorite. You're all satisfying, you're beautiful. You meet every longing that I have. I delight in you, I'm satisfied in who you are. You're the end of my quest. That's what loving God means, it's the first and great commandment. So, Christian hedonism affirms that you should pursue your joy maximum and forever, and that's only found in God. Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I have often said to groups, and I'll say it now to you, if you could truly give me a pleasure, a happiness, that is fuller than full and longer than forever, I would stop being a Christian and follow your way. And I do not believe that the Lord hearing me say that right now in heaven is the least offended. I think he's smiling right now. You know why? because he knows that statement is a way of saying, not only can you not offer me anything better than Christ, you can't conceive of anything better than Christ. Fuller than full is a contradiction longer than eternity is a contradiction. You can't offer me or even conceive of a better thing than I have in God. There are no takers for this challenge on the planet. You can't improve on Psalm 1611. So Christian hedonism affirms that I am to pursue my joy in God fullest forever and it can't be found anywhere else. Now we lost this in our sin. In fact, sin is by definition preferring anything to God. That's what sin is. And so we, we threw away full and lasting pleasure when we fell into sin. Jesus, in God's great mercy, is sent into the world to restore to people who do not deserve one minute of happiness. You do not deserve one minute of happiness. All you deserve is destruction, not delight. Not one minute of delight do you deserve. 
And he came into the world to die for people who don't deserve a minute of happiness to give us full and eternal pleasure. This is what the gospel is. He died so that we might be forgiven. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and forced him, he condemned sin in the flesh. Whose flesh did God condemn sin in? Answer, Jesus' flesh, not mine. I get to go free. Whose sin was condemned in Jesus' flesh? Mine, not his, because he didn't have any. I love Romans 8, 3. God condemned John Piper's sin in the flesh of the crucified son of God. My condemnation is over. And he did that so that if I would turn from all my idols, embrace him as my savior, my Lord, the supreme all satisfying treasure of my life, everything would be forgiven. But now right here, I wanna make sure you realize forgiveness is not the goal of the gospel. Forgiveness always happens in the pursuit of a better goal, right? If I get up in the morning and I sin against my wife before breakfast with my mouth and wound her, I need forgiveness. Why? And if you answer, so that she'll make supper. <laughs> That's the way a lot of people treat God. That's why they want forgiveness. Hell is hot for goodness sakes. I'd rather have supper in a cool place. It's not a good answer. You know why I should want forgiveness? I want her. I don't like the wall. I don't like the ice. I don't like the offense that I have created. So be careful why you want the gospel. The gospel exists to remove barriers between you and God, the enjoyment of God, the delight in God. It's not just to relieve your conscience, get you out of hell. Sinners want that without any new birth whatsoever. You don't need to be born again to not to want to burn. You have to be born again to be satisfied in God. This is huge that you get the goal of the gospel right. And it isn't exit from hell, entrance to heaven, golf forever. It's not the gospel. So Christian hedonism goes for broke. It wants the ultimate goal of the gospel. I love 1 Peter 3, 18 for this reason. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. <laughs> That's why he died. He died to bring you into an enjoyment of God. And if you don't enjoy God, you're not saved. That's why he died, 
that you might enjoy God more than anything, more than wife, more than family, more than money, more than success, more than forgiveness, more than eternal life. Your steadfast love is better than life, Psalm 63. So that's where your joy is to be found and Christian hedonism won't let you settle for anything less. So God made us to enjoy full and eternal pleasure in him. He sent Jesus Christ into the world to make it possible for people who deserve not one minute of happiness to have full and eternal pleasure in him forever. And finally, Christian hedonism makes two statements that prove to be, it seems, in my 45, 50 years of working on this, controversial. Um, here they are. If you abandon your pursuit of full and eternal pleasure in God, you will not be able to glorify God or love people. Let me put it positively. Joy in God as your supreme beauty and treasure. Joy in God is essential for glorifying him from your heart and loving people from your heart. If you say joy in God, pleasure in God is like icing on the cake and the cake is Christian commitment and duty, you cannot glorify God or love people or to bring it home for our purposes here this weekend. If you do not pursue and find your pleasure supremely in God above all things, you will not be able to be generous with your resources from a heart that glorifies God and loves people. There's lots of unbelievers who are generous. There are no unbelievers who are generous from a heart that glorifies God and authentically loves people. So those are two pretty, pretty radical statements. Namely, you can't glorify God if you're not pursuing your happiness in him supremely, and you can't love people if you're not pursuing your happiness in him supremely. And I want to answer the question, why is that? And then go to two passages of scripture and defend it from the Bible. So here's my answer to the first one. Why is it that you can't glorify God if you are not happy in God, not his gifts, in him? Answer, because God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him, especially in seasons of loss and suffering. Satisfaction in God is how God is glorified, especially in seasons of loss and suffering. So that's my first answer, which we'll go to the Bible too and, and defend in a minute. Here's the second one. Why is it that you can't love people if you are not pursuing, finding, 
your heart satisfaction in God? Because people are most loved by you when your joy in God overflows to draw them into it with you forever. So if you don't have joy in God, you can't draw others into joy in God, which would be what love is. Pretty plain to me and unbelievably radical because it puts you on a quest for your own heart satisfaction that is very desperate because Satan will do anything to keep you from it. All right. The rest of our time is gonna be spent in the Bible. We're gonna put a text on the screen. If you've got your phone, you wanna look at it in your own version, that's great too. Philippians chapter one is the first text, verses 20 to 23. And here's what I'm looking for, and I want you to be a good Berean now. John Piper's opinion is of zero value. God's opinion is of infinite value. This word right here, this is God's word. If I can show you from here that what I just said is true about why glorifying God, about why being happy in God is essential to glorifying him, you better believe it. Otherwise you perish. And if I can show you that your happiness in God is essential to your loving people from 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 8 in a moment, you better believe it because it doesn't matter at all what I say. But if it's here, okay, let's see if it's here. So I'm gonna read Philippians 1, verses 20 to 23. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be magnified. Megaluno in Greek, shown to be magnificent, honored, glorified in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Now here's the reason I choose to look at this text with you. In verse 20, Paul is saying that his hope, his passion, his expectation, his desire, and I think it's yours, is to magnify Jesus. Whether he lives, whether he dies, he's walking through the world in his body, and if he's alive, he wants Jesus to look great off of that life, and if he dies, he wants Jesus to look magnificent in that death, right? That's, that's verse 20. So clear, Paul's passion is, I want Christ to look great in my life. Live or die, let him look great. So that's why I'm choosing it, because I wanna know, okay, how do you do that? And he tells us in verse 21. Verse 21 begins with four which means he's giving a ground or a basis. He's explaining the basis, how it is that in life and death, Christ could be shown to be magnificent. Answer, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
that has proved to be one of the most important sentences in my life, my thinking, my theology, everything I've written. Why? Look at the logic now. You just gotta see this or everything I'm saying here should be ignored if you don't see this logic. But the connection between 20 and 21, everything I live for and say hangs on the connection between verse 20 and 21. That's saying a lot, right? So if you don't see it, then I'm just gonna leave and get on a plane and you'll just do whatever. So verse 20, Christ is going to be magnified and in verse 21, how is that so? Let, here's the way to see it most clearly. Just focus on the death half. He's got life and death in verse 20, life and death in verse 21. Let's just take the death part and see, see if it doesn't sound like this. Verse 20, Christ is going to be magnified by my death. I expect that he'll be magnified. I hope he'll be magnified. I want him to be magnified by my death. Verse 21, for to me to die is gain. Do you get that? Do you get the connection between Christ magnified in my death because I experienced death as gain? There's a missing premise. Like, why? Why would experiencing death as gain make Christ look magnificent? There's a missing premise. It's in verse 23. My desire is to depart, that is die, and be with Christ, for that is far better. There's the missing premise. Why is it that experiencing death as gain makes Christ look magnificent? Because the gain is Christ. So experiencing Christ as gain in my dying is precisely what makes him look magnificent in my dying. Now, if you were a preacher and you just wanted to put that in a little catchy phrase, what would you say? Wouldn't you say something like, Christ is most magnified in me when I am most satisfied in him in the moments of greatest loss? Death. That's my whole theology. And if, if you don't see that, then I've done my best. So I'm back to the first question of, of Christian hedonism. Why is it that you can't glorify God if you don't delight in God, find satisfaction in God? Because God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him in the moments of greatest suffering and loss. I think verses 20 to 23 of Philippians 1 says that. And therefore, I just want to do all I can to live that way. Not, I presume no superior success than yours in living that way. I just see it and long for it. So that's my answer to question number one. That's my textual foundation for it. 
You meditate more on those verses and see if you think that is so. Let's go to the second question because it really gets nitty gritty when it comes to generosity. Why can't you love people if you are not satisfied in God? We're gonna put a text up from 2 Corinthians 8, verses one and two and verse eight. Let me give you the background here. You know this. I mean, this, this has gotta be one of the classic go-to texts for people who wanna be generous, I hope. Paul has seen the outpouring of God's grace in Macedonia, which means northern part of Greece. He's talking Philippi. You can read about this in the book of Acts, chapter 16. You can read about it in the the letter to the Philippians. An an unbelievable grace has been poured out in the Macedonian area. And Paul is referring to it in verses one and two of chapter eight in 2 Corinthians in order to motivate and inspire the Corinthians down in the southern part of Greece with the generosity of the church up in the northern part, which is what's happening at this conference, right? Hearing stories about Macedonians, you're the Corinthians and you're supposed to be inspired. That's exactly the way Paul's thinking here. All right, let's read it. We want you to know, brothers, 2 Corinthians 8, 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For, here's the evidence of the grace being poured out. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, the reason I included verse eight here, you see a little dot, 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 I left out five verses, um, is because in verse eight, what we just read is called love, and that's what I'm after. I wanna know what love is, and I wanna know how it relates to joy in God. So that's why I included verse eight. I say this to prove by the earnestness of others, the Macedonians, that your love also, your love also, they had love, now I want your love to look like that love. That's why I included verse eight. So you know in Paul's mind, what he's talking about in verses one and two is love. I don't care what you think love is. I don't care what the world thinks love is. I don't care what John Piper thinks love is. I wanna know what the inspired apostle thinks love is. And he's telling us verses one and two is love. Well, let's look at it and how it relates to your joy in God and your generosity. Verse one, the grace of God has been poured out on the churches of Macedonia. And they have evidently had their sins forgiven and have been given the hope of eternal life. They have been brought into friendship with God through Jesus Christ. Hell has been shut. Heaven has been opened. Everlasting and full joy has been secured for them. That's what grace does, right? That's what happened to the Philippians. You read that book. Here's the result, verse two. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty 
have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And Paul calls that love. There are four pieces in verse two. A severe affliction. Overflowing joy in a wealth of generosity. Three, a severe test of affliction. I said that twice. Let me start over and number them right. Abundance of joy, overflow in generosity, test of affliction, severe affliction, and extreme poverty. So you get four pieces in verse two that you can see. They're all important, really important to to make the point that I see. So here's a group of people who have tasted the saving grace of God and they've tasted it so deeply that their, their joy in God is described as great and overflowing in, in abundance. But notice, their joy is flourishing in the presence of severe affliction. Now, if, if I wanted to impress you in this sermon with my point, I would make up the phrase severe affliction. And I didn't make it up. That's the ESV. It's a good translation. I didn't make it up. In the midst of severe affliction, their joy is overflowing. Secondly, their joy is flourishing in the presence of extreme poverty. And if I wanted to take a good pot shot at the prosperity gospel this morning, which I do, (laughs) I would choose the phrase extreme poverty. And I didn't choose it. I didn't make it up. That's in the text. That's the ESV. What's that mean? Here you've got severe affliction. Here you've got extreme poverty. And in the middle, a volcano of joy. What's that mean? It's real simple. Their joy is in God and it can't be touched by affliction and poverty. That's really, really radical. Full of affliction, severe Joyful. Poverty, joyful. Their joy was in God. I can imagine millions of nominal Christians in America or in the West saying, look, God, if this is how you treat your children, especially baby children who are just a few months old up in Philippi, I'm out of here. I don't like fathers like that. I didn't sign up for affliction. I didn't sign up for poverty. I signed up for protection and prosperity. If you can't produce, I can do better on my own. Farewell. Millions of Christians are in that category so-called Christians. I fear for much of Western Christianity 
that it's just not real. What made Macedonian Christianity real was their joy in God in spite of affliction and in spite of poverty. If you need to have your cancer healed in order to be happy in God, then you're not a Christian. If you need to first get out of poverty in order to be happy in God, you're not a Christian. You are an idolater. You have committed emotional treason. They knew that their sins had been taken away. They had been saved from hell. They had been brought into fellowship with God. They had been promised full and everlasting joy. They had seen the smile of God. They knew the friendship of God. They saw and tasted the beauty of his holiness and his love. And therefore their joy was not touchable by affliction of any kind or prosperity or poverty of any kind. It was freedom. It was radical. They were not dependent on comfort. They were not dependent on security or safety. Their joy was in God. And it was so great that he described it as overflowing. So let's notice that. Read verse two one more time. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, overflowing joy, and their extreme poverty So their abundance of joy, now it got so full that it overflowed, that's in the text, I'm not making that up, overflowed in a wealth of generosity. And then verse eight calls that love. So if if I were teaching you a class and I give you a final exam, one of the questions would be define love on the basis of 2 Corinthians 8, 2. Here's the way I would put it. This, this would be an A. <laughs> Love is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others, especially in times of suffering and loss. Actually, there is an A plus answer goes like this. Love is the inner impulse of joy in God to expand and include others in it. Because when their joy in God joins our joy in God, our joy in God is fuller. And we're Christian hedonists going for the fullest possible joy. There is something unique about joy in God that's different from joy in other things. Joy in other things tends to be protective. What this? Joy in God is, it's expansive. I want you in here with me. 
I don't care if you're my enemy. I don't care what you've said about me. I want you in here with me forever. And I will die for it. So, love is this experience of satisfaction, joy, delight, pleasure in God that has this high pressure zone weather impulse of expanding in order to draw the poor saints in Jerusalem by means of generosity into it. If you just want to make people richer with your riches and you don't care whether they have joy in God with you forever, you don't love them. Or God. So, my second answer, second statement answer, why is it that joy in God is essential to loving people? Because love is the overflow of joy in God that expands to include others in it. That's what love is. So, I am praying that God would take everything this weekend that you've heard and it has been amazing and wonderful and true and provocative and stirring and inspiring. I am praying that God would take everything you've heard this weekend and would use it to deepen and intensify your pleasure in God, that he would remove by the gospel of Jesus Christ every obstacle between you and the beauty and the worth of God as your all-satisfying treasure. There's something in between. Jesus died to remove it. And I'm praying that therefore, when you see God that way, experience God that way, are satisfied in God that supremely, therefore, you will magnify Christ in your body, whether you live or whether you die. And while you live, that you would overflow with generosity from hearts of authentic love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is a miracle that none of us can make happen. If right now we love our wife more than we love you, if we delight in, in our children more than we delight in you, if we find more satisfaction in the success of our business than we find in you, if we are desperate for health more than we're desperate for you, we need a miracle. We cannot snap our fingers and make this happen. We can't turn on the water faucet of delight. It is a gift. And so I'm closing in prayer, not preaching. And I ask that you'd come and you'd work the miracle, Lord, that this whole generous giving is built on the miracle of joy in God that meets the needs 
of others. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.